Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last week due to complications arising from cancer of the pancreas. President Trump announced earlier this week that he will soon nominate someone to replace Justice Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. But even before the president's announcement, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pledged that Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. McConnell's pledge to vote on a Trump nominee contradicts his 2016 call to let the people decide who should fill the vacancy created by the passing of Ginsburg's close friend and conservative icon Justice Scalia. Coming just weeks before the presidential election, the debate over whether Trump or Biden should get to pick Ginsburg's replacement on the Supreme Court has injected new controversy into an already controversial campaign. How will Ginsburg's death impact the campaign? What is the appropriate time for the Senate to consider a Supreme Court nominee? And what does this controversy say about the role that the courts play in our politics today? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast that explores why our political institutions are failing and considers ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, and I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, good morning, guys. And I I wish that we were meeting under happier uh, circumstances, but I, you know this is an important topic, and I want to get into our conversation about the Supreme Court here soon. But I say I wish I, we were meeting under happier circumstances because I don't think it's ever uh, something a good thing or happy when someone passes away. And you know, I want to really start off our conversation this morning by by remembering and uh, Justice Ginsburg and reflecting on her and her career and her life and what it meant um, to you and and to the country. I think that's something important that we should do. Julia, yeah, I think that's a good way to start out. And it it did occur to me on on Friday night as people started doing that doing the game tree of how various actors in Congress would respond to the politics of her replacement that it that it makes sense both to reflect on her her life and her kind of public legacy yeah i mean obviously ruth bader ginsburg was a, a feminist icon of an icon for gender equity um i have her quote on my office door about how she thinks the right number of supreme court justice uh women supreme court justices is is nine that's how many they you know that's they've there have been nine men and no one ever asked any questions. And I think about that a lot in various in various contexts in my life. Lee? Yeah. So uh, we, we have at my house a kid's book of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life. Uh, the title is, is I Dissent. And, you know, I, I don't think until I had that book, I really appreciated how much prejudice and discrimination she overcame at, at every step of her life and you know it made me appreciate her even more and it you know it reminds me just you know how far we've come as a country in in terms of you know, gender equity and you know i mean as a she was also discriminated against because she was a jew and yet you know there's still still a long way to go but it it really does you know, impress on me, you know, just just the the fortitude uh, and and the will and the determination of of one single person to fight against what seemed like an immovable object and to actually 
move it through her own force of intelligence and, and personality. And you know, I think there are very few people who, who have done that in the way that, that she has. So, you know, I think it's a reminder that just because things are the way they are, they don't have to stay that way. That's such a, a great way to describe both Justice Ginsburg, I, I believe, and also the kind of qualities that we need uh, to possess as citizens um, in a self-governing democratic republic. You know, I, I, am, I admire Justice Ginsburg so much, and I say that as a conservative who disagrees with her jurisprudence, and she knows far more about the law and has forgotten far more about the law than I will ever, ever, ever know. But I, you know, I do take issue with some of her uh, jurisprudence. But with that being said, I think that we need more people like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both in the nation and in our political institutions. Because as you say, Lee, she cared deeply about these issues. Um, she gave them a very sustained study. She was a, a fighter. And she believed in the American project, which I think is so, so very important. But I think what I find most admirable about Justice Ginsburg is really typified by her relationship and friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia, who is someone who I think of a lot when I try to describe my um, own jurisprudence. I typically agree with Antonin Scalia or did agree with him prior to his passing a few years ago on on what he um, how he thought about the Constitution. But with that being said, you know, the challenge that we face today is our inability to communicate across our differences. And it seems to me that the deep and abiding friendship that Scalia and Ginsburg had with one another and their ability to to recognize that that they were both human beings and they both cared deeply and passionately about our country and about the Constitution, and they just had different perspectives on it. I think that's so, so terribly important. And I think that we should seek to emulate both Scalia and Ginsburg in, in our lives um, and, and how they approached the world and how much they loved life in general and, and didn't get consumed by politics per se. And I think we try to do a little bit of that, I like to think, on our pod, uh, on our podcast and, and in my friendship uh, with you, Lee, and also uh, with you, Julia. I mean, I think we disagree a lot, but I think we do so with grace. And that's something that, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did extraordinarily well, in my opinion. But, you know, we can't talk about, you know, how much we admire Ginsburg all day long, because we have, you know, our listeners want to, you know, hear about, well, what happens next? And so I want to make that transition. And it's something that is always a little bit uncomfortable. But I guess my question to you is, uh, Julia, how will her passing, in your opinion, affect how will Ginsburg's passing impact uh, the balance of power on the Supreme Court? Or how could it impact the balance of power on the court? I mean, I think that we're starting to see a scenario take shape in which the Senate will confirm a Trump nominee before the election, or at least before January 20th. I obviously could be wrong. So we're recording this on September 22nd at about nine o'clock in the morning Eastern time. So that's the, the most recent information available to us. A couple of Republicans in the Senate have come out in opposition to this process, but but not enough to deny McConnell the votes. So it seems to me like that's likely, in which case the balance of the court moves to the right. And I'll quote a friend and colleague, Jonathan Ladd at Georgetown, who's been tweeting and kind of saying this, what what this means is it is Roberts is no longer the sort of central 
um, you know, pivotal vote on the court, it'll, it will become Gorsuch or Kavanaugh. Lee, what do you what do you think about that? I, I think the balance, of, I mean, obviously what Julia said, the balance of the court will move to the right. Uh, but this kind of changes American politics in some potentially quite fundamental ways, because it means that the Supreme Court will become a conservative bastion. Uh, I mean, for a long time, the the left sort of assumed that the you know the courts were on their side, uh, or you know there was a, a sort of way in which I think the the left practiced politics that you know you could always use activist and advocacy litigation when politics failed, and that uh, is fundamentally changing. And the left also didn't take the court as seriously from a political standpoint because it was sort of taken for granted. Uh, now, obviously, that seems sort of weird because the court actually has been somewhat conservative for a while. But I think it's kind of a holdover from the, the 60s and 70s and the Warren court when the court was more liberal and there was sort of a the sort of the modern left uh, was formed. So th- this fundamentally shifts that, you know, I think the, the conservatives, you know, now will take the court for granted. And, you know, that, that means that I, I would anticipate the, the, the right will pursue more of, a, of an activist litigation uh, approach to politics and the left will have to practice actually, uh, you know, building public opinion, which you know, I think will be good for the left long term. Uh, the big asterisk on all of that is whether then this pushes us into a moment of court packing and just fundamentally delegitimizing the idea that the the uh, judicial branch is an independent, non-political branch. And maybe we're already at that point. And then maybe the whole role of the courts shifts to just being fundamentally political, in which case, then what's the point of having an independent judiciary? I want to argue with Lee about uh, court packing at some point, but James, I want to let you uh, respond also. Absolutely. Well, you know, why don't you go ahead and argue just a little bit about court packing? I've got my own views about it. Even I've read an op-ed with Lee, um, we can revisit as well, um, which I guess I kind of am endorsed court packing in, in some form. But you know, I have some thoughts on that as well. But by all means, go for it. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this in terms of the in, uh, sort of comparisons between the Ginsburg's passing and Scalia's. You know, both were ideological icons, and I think their their passing marked a lot of important things to to supporters on their respective sides. And I think that on the one hand, that should be respected. But on the other hand, their their sort of mainstream jurisprudence, their main ideas had different relationships to what is now majority opinion in the country. Um, and that's where I think like, oh, the court could lurch to the left, the court could, could lurch to the right, isn't the only framework. The other framework is the court could lurch in a more counter-majoritarian direction, which would be, I think, you know, if we're going to map this onto justices, a lot of like Scalia type opinions, um, or could lurch in a more majoritarian type direction, um, where like, if we think about some of these recent crucial social issues, um, like same-sex marriage and marriage equality, the court followed public opinion on that, didn't lead. And that's where I see, you know, I see this is sort of the fundamental challenge of figuring out the role of the court is at what point does it play a role of protecting the rights of 
minorities or the the right the opinion you know the sort of political impact of political minorities and at what point does it become a kind of illegitimate counter-majoritarian unelected and unchecked institution and one way we can answer that that's not a debate about the merits of particular issues is to think about the ways in which other institutions can check the court and that's where i think court i mean i'm tired of the word court packing right this is a specific word from a specific political battle in 1937 and it's and it was a moment when the court was behaving in a counter-majoritarian way um but it's it's very much the fight about that was very much actually about roosevelt as president usurping the legislature's prerogative and telling them what to do right not so much about the notion that there's something magical about nine supreme court justices there's not and unless the other branches are willing to meaningfully check the court and it does become this very unaccountable immovable branch that can embrace counter-majoritarian policy perspectives. So that's sort of my my abstract argument for court packing. I mean, whether it's strategic for the Democrats or like, where does it end? You know, I haven't really had a chance to game all that out. But I think as a, as a practice, we should embrace the idea that the elected branches can also check the court. Lee, please respond. I've got, I've just read a whole book here of things that uh, I think are great about what Julia just said, but go for it. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I mean, so yeah, I, I'm happy to propose a, a more neutral term for court packing. And I mean, honestly, I, I go back and forth on it myself. But I, I sort of feel like the Supreme Court fights are downstream from these broader political fights that we're having. And so, you know, the I mean, the fundamental problem you know, it is this, you know, escalating zero sum hyperpartisanship. And, you know, I think it's in some ways it's probably useful to think about the kind of three main areas uh, of of court rulings. And, you know, one is the kind of social issues, gay marriage and to some extent abortion, uh, you know, which are sort of these flashpoints on the culture war. And, you know, largely the Supreme Court has followed public opinion, although, you know, I, I, it would be, I think, counter-majoritarian if it, if it outlawed, if it, if it reversed Roe v. Wade, since I think that the majority of public opinion is in favor of at least some, you know, uh, access to, to, uh, to abortion. And, you know, on, on those issues, the Supreme Court has, you know, largely, you know, followed public opinion uh, but if it if it didn't follow public opinion there, I think there would be a, a tremendous uh, ch- legitimacy crisis to the court. Then there's the the ACA Affordable Care Act, and you know I might lump that into a broader uh, basket of of stuff about the business regulation. The court has been, I mean, one of the things about the court has it's been extremely pro business for a long time, and and that's not gotten as much attention because those issues are not the, the cultural flashpoints. And I, yeah, I think the court will become even more pro-business. Um, well, actually, that's probably a fourth bucket, because um, I think we'd probably want to bracket the ACA and Affordable Care Act litigation. Uh, you know, and that would be, I think, another point at which the, the, the court could run afoul of some sense of illegitimacy. And then there's the, I think, the toughest area for the court in many ways is the election-related cases and the voting-related cases, so Shelby County and the stuff around the voting voting rights, uh, the, the gerrymandering cases, 
and you know of course the extent to which it would have it might have to rule on some disputes uh, emerging from the november election and there there's there's basically no way to avoid partisan politics it would seem and that to me is the is probably the the most dangerous area when it comes to the the counter majoritarian uh, nature of the court because it can effectively preserve uh, fundamentally anti-democratic election rules, which you know means that the 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 legislature can't effectively uh, be a check on the Supreme Court if it's. I mean, I guess it can, but if the legislature itself becomes anti-majority minoritarian rule. Uh, enshrined by a minoritarian Supreme Court, there I think we have a fundamental crisis of democracy. And that's the area that I think we should be most worried about and most concerned about. Uh, and, you know, that's thinking along those lines is the way that I could convince myself that actually, you know, court expanding, there's no magic about nine, the number has varied over the history uh, of our country, would actually be a legitimate response. Court, you know, let me see if I can summarize um, this because uh, there's so much here uh, that both of you have um, observed. I think that we could have you know four or five seasons of the podcast just on the issues that we've raised. But let me let me see if I can kind of summarize some of the impact and then you know see where it takes us. But I, court expanding doesn't quite roll off the tongue, does it? But court packing, Julia's right. I mean, no one likes packing. I mean, who likes to pack? Either you're moving. I mean, you like going places. But you don't like to pack. Yeah, I mean, if you're going on a trip, right? Yeah, right? I mean, but no, like, even... we're going out. You know, we're going on a fishing trip. Let's let's pack but up. Nobody right? likes to pack. I mean, James, have I got you? Have I got you going? Well, I'm already packed for my fishing for the for the for the fishing trip. Um, I, I'm all, I stay perpetually packed. Um, but no, so look, there's several. Ginsburg's passing, I think, can impact the court in several ways. And so I want to phrase it a little bit broader than just balance of power, which was my original question, because I think there's a lot of issues that you both have raised here. I mean, one of the ways that Ginsburg can impact the court is ideological, right? And this is a big deal. Ginsburg is a liberal. Scalia was a conservative. So if Republicans are able to replace Ginsburg with a conservative justice, that has a bigger impact than replacing Scalia with a conservative justice. It does shift the balance in a new way, if you will, as opposed to just defending and holding a seat. So you have the ideological impact. But then related from that, flowing from that, there is a structural, a potential structural impact, right? But And this is, you know, as, as Lee observed, if filling the seat could potentially impact the court structure, leading to court expanding, court packing, court, you know, maybe down, I mean, whatever you want to call it, but basically tinkering with the structure of the court to mitigate, to mitigate the impact of the ideological uh, consequences of Ginsburg's passing and Trump filling the vacancy. And then lastly, and this I think gets to Julia's point, you know, about legitimacy, is that the decisions that flow from the court Right. With the new justice and or decisions that, you know, the Congress makes with regard to the court structure to potentially expand it to to kind of react to the new justice and to shift the balance back towards the left. Both of those could potentially um, have very severe consequences for the court's legitimacy moving forward. And I think and lastly, on Lee's point, so I said lastly, lastly, um, uh, and Lee's point, the last point that Lee just made is that in all of these ways, if we combine them, we see that 
I think that the problem is really upstream. You know, the potential impact is there that I've just outlined and summarized, I think, because of how we think about politics and how we think about the courts. And one of the things I keep wrestling with and I keep asking people about, and this is a whole nother podcast altogether, which is what, how do we reconcile the idea that the judiciary is the final authority, that the Supreme Court is the ultimate authority in our politics with the separation of powers and with the idea and the understanding that we do not have final authorities in our politics. Because after all, what, what is another word for a, a final authority? It's called a ruler. And we don't have rulers in America. But, you know, setting so going from the impact of and, I, and that's definitely a, a question that I, I want to dive deeper into in another episode, if I can convince you, because I've yet to find an answer. I'm not sure I know the answer. But, um, you know, looking at how Ginsburg's passing will impact the court depends on how her seat is filled. It depends on when it is filled. And we're just taking it um, as a given for obvious reasons that. Trump is going to fill it. But there's a whole nother kind of actor here. And that's the Senate. And obviously, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, I believe, the Appointments Clause, gives the Senate the power to advise and consent. The president gets to start the process by nominating someone. But after that, it's really up to the Senate to decide on whether to confirm a presidential nominee to serve on the Supreme Court. So with that in mind, I guess the first question I want to ask, and you know, then we can get to what do we think the Senate's going to do. We can talk about you know 2016 and and why is everyone talking about it. But you know, just as a basic matter, when should the Senate consider a nomination? Julia, let's start with you on this. What do you what do you think about this? Yeah, so I've been really um, wrestling with this over the past couple of days because it. It seems like, I mean, the real issue right now is there's not a clear informal rule. Um, Mitch McConnell in 2016 delayed, you know, refused to ha have hearings uh, um, or consider Obama's nominee um, when Scalia passed away in February. And there were two logics of that, right? One one was sort of the, the overt political logic of we're going to wait to have an election and let the people weigh in, which was a is a kind of a building idea in American politics. It's grown more, I think, more powerful and more common as a justification for things. Um, and I wrote a book about that. Um, but also, I mean, the, obviously, the, the sort of underlying logic was this team logic of you know, playing playing constitutional hardball to to borrow that phrase, um, in order to preserve a victory for the team, and it was successful, and in fact, I think it did have an influence on on the race. So that is the precedent we're dealing with here, and now we're much closer to an election. The normal thing, right? The standard thing, the old rules would be that the Senate should hear, you know, should should um, vote on confirming a Trump nominee because Trump is president right now. Um, but obviously, people are having a hard time wrestling with that, both because of what happened in 2016 because of and because of team sentiment. And I think actually there's a third reason, which is that there's concern that, and I think this concern is, is widespread, at least it's is shared among more than just hardcore Democrats, is that um, this isn't just someone is isn't just a Supreme Court nomination, but this is, you know, Trump has talked about the federal courts helping him in the election and that this is part of a larger illegitimate 
power consolidation. And that's really, that's sort of my concern um, around this is not so much this is, you know, this, this is the Supreme Court becoming more political or the norms changing about when we, we um, would hear a confirmation for a nominee, but that this is part of a, re- a, a really more concerning um more concerning development that we don't really have the language for, I think, in a lot of a lot of how we think about American politics. I think that's a, a, a great observation, and especially the your you know the idea that there's no informal rule here. And I want to return to that because I think that's it really just got my brain going, and that's a feat in and of itself um, this early in the morning. But uh, Lee, what do you what what do you think? What's your reaction to to my profound uh, thoughts or to Julia's uh, insightful question here or observations? Well, you know. Or your own, for that matter. Uh, well, Julia is exactly right. I mean, the, the problem is there's there's no procedure, no norm, no agreed upon way of doing business around this. Uh, it's it's all power politics, and we have this crazy system of lifetime appointments. Uh, by the way, the only country that that does this for our judiciary. Uh, in which just the, the the randomness of the human lifespan uh, and and course of, of diseases uh, you know becomes a uh, you know, another element in our politics. So you know that there's you know if we had term limits or some sort of structured way of doing this that was that we call agree on as fair. Uh, you know, then then this wouldn't be such an issue, but it's basically, you know, injecting this this random element into our politics. And, and there's no good way to handle this. Right. You know, what whatever you do is is uh, seems like it's unfair to one side or the other, uh, because when you when you don't have agreed upon rules and standards for handling these situations the only alternative is is power politics yeah i think that's not really it you know it does align i think with a lot of what we've talked about on this podcast in the past and the the kind of common element and problem of our institutions that at least as i see it right now you know the senate so taking a step back i mean the senate obviously can do whatever it wants under the constitution Article one, section five, clause two, the rules and expulsions clause that gives the pres- uh, the Senate the authority and the House, for that matter, to determine their own rules of proceedings, unless they don't, unless they violate other constitutional provisions. And the Constitution doesn't spell out how the Senate uh, has to consider a nominee, or even that is that the Senate has to consider the nominee. It's up to the Senate to make that decision. Uh, we may have different ideas about what it decides to do, uh, but there is no one course of action. Uh, that is inherently more legitimate than another, right? There's no violation of the Constitution here. So I think this is a great example of trying to separate out our policy ideas and the institutional framework and how we ought to start our approach to questions like these by thinking institutionally. And then once we've situated ourselves within the institutional structure of our politics, then to pivot and say, okay, with that in mind, now, on this terrain that I have in front of me, what is the best course of action for policy X? What do I think should happen? Um, but there's a deeper issue here, which, you know, when the Senate acts, right, their senators can be held accountable. 
And this, I think, gets into the 2016 issue as well. You know, the, right now we don't have anyone acting in the Senate in a kind of broad way. Everyone's uh, because they don't want to be held accountable. Have you? I mean, we've talked about this before, but senators speak in the third person now. It's really, uh, it's really bizarre. They talk about the Senate as if they're they're victims, right? And and if you look at the 2016 uh, messaging surrounding Justice Garland and, and Mitch McConnell and Republicans, this is a great example of that. I remember when um, Justice when President Obama nominated Justice Garland. I uh, worked in the Senate at the time, and several of my uh, bosses, my members for whom I worked, were members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And in full disclosure, they were immediately saying, we need to not confirm Garland, period. Period. Uh, Majority Leader McConnell at the time quickly jumped on board this effort. Um, he wasn't the first to do it, incidentally. But what was interesting about his involvement in jumping on board this effort was the messaging angle. We shouldn't confirm this nominee, period, or we shouldn't confirm this nominee because we don't like this nominee's jurisprudence and we're the Senate and we get to decide, period, which doesn't quite roll off the tongue. He changed it to the people decide, which as you know, someone who talks about the Constitution and likes the Constitution, that always struck me as a little odd and completely contrary to what the framers wanted. And for someone, and perhaps that's what we need, but for someone who ostensibly supports the Constitution and is claiming to defend it, the idea that somehow we're going to turn the Supreme Court, the decision to fill Supreme Court vacancies into popular referendums, you know, referenda seems very odd to me. But also letting the people decide creates a messaging problem later on, case in point where we are today. Um, but more broadly, and I think more importantly, letting the people decide takes away the power to act from the senators. Letting the people decide means that Mitch McConnell is not the one who has agency here. It is the people. And he's just doing whatever it is that the people want him to do or any other senator for that matter. Um, and now, and, and even if with how he's talking about um, 2020 versus 2016, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, He's, you know, the way he frames it now is, well, the people have decided again. They decided to give the Senate to Republicans and the presidency to Republicans, unlike 2016 when Obama held the presidency. So even now, when he is literally within minutes of, of Justice Ginsburg passing away, saying the Senate's going to vote on a nominee, even before Trump says he's going to send a nominee up, he's still couching it in language that makes him a victim. And I think that's that's the that's the problem. And then that underlines or I think illuminates this means ends politics that we have. It's meant to distract because ultimately, I agree with you, Lee, and I agree with Julia. There are no agreed upon rules and standards. And I would submit to you, there cannot be any agreed upon rules and standards in our politics anymore. And the reason why is because when you see politics as a means to an end, then anything to it, that any mean to achieve that end becomes acceptable. You begin to rationalize everything away. And so therefore, the rules lose meaning. The standards lose meaning. They become malleable that we just change whenever we want to, whenever we need to, because the circumstances dictate new means to get new ends. And I would submit to you, the Democrats view this the same way. I mean, we, we focus on McConnell. It seems to me that Schumer has, has equally changed his position 100%. And while people say, well, it's because the Republicans made him do it, in 2016, they weren't couching their language in terms of, well, this is, you know, you know, they were couching it in terms of high-minded institutional principles and ideas about the Constitution. Well, those things ought to trump what, no pun intended, 
what the Republicans do, right? You can't let the Republicans, you know, behavior of means ends politics turn you into means ends politics, because then you're just the same as they are, if that's the way you see the world. And so, you know, I think that this is a, it, this, this debate over in the, in the controversy, which is very real, and I understand it gets to the core of what's happening. And I kind of jumped, you know, ahead here to my next question. And I think especially to you, Julia, but, you know, what is this example? I mean, what does this tell us about norms and rulemaking? And, and am I wrong in how, I looking, how I'm looking at it? I mean, should we expect that, you know, the parties will not or, or ought they not to commit to this kind of hypocritical flip-flopping? Or is this just the nature of politics? And I, I want to take a one more brief caveat here. I'm not sure I would, after saying that, I'm not sure I would even call it hypocritical because they don't, it's not hypocritical to to advocate different means when you're in power and the other side isn't, and then vice versa when they're in power, because they have different ends than you. And so if anything, you're being consistent. That's the thing about means ends politics. I don't know. What do you think, Julia? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is interesting. And I certainly, I mean, the point that I think, I think actually Trump articulated this possibly um, was you know, it's different when there's unified government. Maybe this was McConnell. It's different when there's unified government than when there's divided government, or at least when between the presidency and the Senate, right? When the Senate is controlled by the president's party. I mean, on other issues, we would expect that. So that gets at the at the heart of the sort of um, legitimacy question, which is, okay, we accept that divided government is going to look a little different than, than unified government or quite a lot different on substantive issues, do we expect that that's going to be the case on institutional ones? Or, you know, are we completely done with the idea that there could be any sort of what Lily Mason calls like um, superordinate goals, right? That there would be any shared goals between Democrats and Republicans such that they would um, see appointing a qualified Supreme Court justice who can explain themselves and explain their judicial philosophy in in a compelling way, you know, to nominate that person and to and to make sure that the Supreme Court is, I guess, a full functioning institution. And I, like, regardless of what I think, the answer is obviously no. The answer is obviously that 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 superordinate goal is gone. And instead, we should we should think of as a matter of empirics, we should think about unified and divided government as different in in every conceivable way. Um, there's from there I think there's there's two questions neither of which I have an answer to but that's you know that's the name of the the podcast um one of them is would we expect Democrats to behave similarly if they if they could so if the Senate were Democratic right now would the majority leader or majority leader you know Schumer or whoever hypothetical refuse to hear Trump's nominee refuse to confirm refuse to hold that vote well in and Julia, I mean, are they not, don't, I mean, do we not have that answer now in terms of how they're, the the difference in behavior from 2016 to now? And while, yes, they were in the majority then, and I mean, they're in the minority then, they're a minority now, um, but they had it brought, Obama was president. But, you know, it seems to me that they've changed how they, beha- both sides have, right? I mean, so, so certainly they've changed their position, but I think it makes a, it makes a difference if you have the power to act on that position or not, Right. Um, that's fair. That's fair. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's fine. So, I mean, I don't really, that is really the question for me is like, do we, would we expect that, that Democrats in Congress will play the same kind of hardball? Um, and this is where, so again, we, we see that we see a reversal of articulated positions, but I also see a lot of voices who are kind of broadly in the democratic coalition who were, who were pro norm and anti hardball. 
The other, and I think some of that is the Democrats have a much kind of more unwieldy coalition to keep together, which some, which makes their behavior often kind of more equivocal. The The second question is, I think, a bigger question and gets to some of what we're talking about with the court. And I think some things that the two of you have thought a lot about, which is the court is essentially, you know, these these types of clashes are essentially treating the court, you know, as I said before, to my point about unified versus divided government as like another policy issue. And that kind of treats the court in a way as sort of downstream effect of the other two branches as opposed to a fully co-equal branch. Um, and that I think is, is a kind of, is the kind of philosophical shift that is just stuff for graduate seminars, uh, kind of until it's not right until it's actually a real institutional force in politics. So those are the two questions that I have. I don't have any answers. I don't know that, that any concrete answers will be generated for a long time. Um, but that's how I'm thinking about this. Wow, that your downstream comment in particular really is intriguing to me. Really intriguing to me. I have to wrestle with that a little bit. But Lee, what what do you think? Um, so let me pick up on a few themes here. You know, one one is this point that Julia raised. Uh, you know, about the the superordinate goal of having qualified Supreme Court justices, which used to be the standard, and you know, a lot of justices used to be confirmed with like, you know, 80 or 90 Senate votes. But there used to not be uh, such a clear sense that there were going to be liberal justices and conservative justices. Uh, And, you know, in fact, a lot of justices nominated by Republicans turned out to be liberal justices. Uh, And a, a lot of that was, you know, also because the parties themselves were more uh, heterogeneous mixes of liberal and and conservative philosophies. And that just uh, there were a lot more issues that just didn't have a clear partisan valence. Uh, And, you know, perhaps most importantly, there there wasn't a a Federalist Society to groom uh, conservative justices. Uh, And, you know, to some extent, there there wasn't a, a similar you know, I guess you'd say that the, the ACS American Constitutional Society is, you know, sort of trying to do the same for the left. But, you know, there, there wasn't a clear sense in which you needed to be an, an ideologue uh, in order to get uh, a nomination by your party. Uh, and, you know, so that's fundamentally changed the way in which the whole nomination process works is that, you know, qualified is, is not enough. It has to be qualified and, you know, reliably ideological for your side. Uh, you know, a few other points about, you know, principle, uh, you know, what, what is the right principle? You know, is it just nakedly power? I mean, I think that's, you know, kind of always been the case. And you can go back to, you know, fights over the Supreme Court or fights about electoral, electoral rules. And, you know, there, there's always some high minded principle that is opportunistic. And, you know, that's just politics is you're trying to 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 appeal to some broader principle. You're trying to expand the conflict. So it's about some some broad, generalizable principle. And, you know, like, that's OK. You know, the, I mean, the problem is when, you know, there's no, you know, James, you talk about accountability that the, that they're afraid of accountability. But the irony is there is no accountability and you know, if people, if voters are voting purely 
uh, to, to put one side in power, to keep the other side out of power, you know, they're willing to tolerate all kinds of hypocrisy as long as it's hypocrisy uh, you know, that is in service of some greater goal. Right. I, I don't think a lot. Of, I don't think too many Republicans are bothered by Mitch McConnell's uh, reversal, even though Democrats are outraged. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't see Democrats being outraged that that Chuck Schumer has changed his position on whether you should confirm a justice in a, an election year. And, you know, I, mean, I think Chuck Schumer would try to do the same uh, if he could get the votes. I'm not sure the Democrat. I think I think for reasons that Julia mentioned, it would be harder for Democrats to get the votes to do that. But you know, who, who knows? Um, you know, and then to the but, you know, even even if we think about the principle that people should decide, there's, you know, the, this this question of of which people. I mean, again, I, you know, I think it's uh, important to understand this Supreme Court fight in the context of the fact that, you know, one, you know, Trump did the people decided for Hillary Clinton, but the Electoral College, was, which is an anti-majoritarian institution uh, in, in practice sometimes, decided on Trump, even though he won fewer votes. And the uh, Democratic senators represent more people than the Republican senators. So, you know, really the people as a whole decided against Republicans, but the states decided for Republicans. And, you know, I mean, I know that's the way our system worked. Those are the rules. You know, Republicans didn't write the rules. They just played by them and did a better job of playing by them. You know, but still, you know, to to then say that the people decided that's, you know, just not right. And even so, you know, even if it was that the people, the majority of people had decided in favor of Republicans, you know, uh, that that's still not the people reified. That's a narrow majority. And one of the, uh, you know, to me, one of the fundamental problems in our political system is that we have this, you know, incredibly uh, narrow winner-take-all approach to politics in which, you know, whichever side can get 51% of the power or of the seats gets 100% of the power. And that's, you know, incredibly unfair to the other 49%. And you know, this is the this is the fear and the frustration that constant, constantly animates our political system. Uh, you know, and the high stakes of this Supreme Court position, in which there's only nine justices and they serve for a lifetime, which now means 30 40 years uh, and gets to decide, you know, fundamental questions of how our democracy works because so much of uh, election litigation winds up in the courts, you know, that, that is tremendous power. So there's really no good way to, to, uh, to, to do this. And, you know, I, th I think it's a, it's a tremendous threat to our democracy. There's, Again, there's so much there, and I think these are we're gonna have we're gonna be continuing this conversation over the next coming weeks and months, even after the seat is filled. Whenever the seat is filled, these issues and these questions are gonna be uh, are gonna remain. You know, Lee, I just wanted to say that you know, one of your earlier questions: the Republicans aren't outraged. Well, you know, they're not outraged because they also think the means justify the ends. I think Democrats, my own view is that they have the same the same kind of view. And, you know, this is something for a future podcast. But 
even, I mean, I think this even brings up the idea of polarization, which you and I, I think, disagree on. But the idea of liberal justices and conservative justices, I mean, you know, I'm not sure what a conservative justice means. And if we say that senators or Americans are voting for justices because they're conservative, well, you know, if you take away maybe, maybe like campaign finance reform, maybe not, you know, Roe, although I'm, I'm not certain that the Republicans in the Senate want to be confronted with that issue or Republicans in state houses for that matter. Um, unlike the activists um, who believe deeply and fervently in the in the righteousness of their cause on both sides, I should add. Um, there's like guns. I mean, there's a lot of issues out there that the courts are grappling with that we are identifying as a, as being consequential in why this is such an important debate that the two parties do not agree on internally. And I think that's so it's really odd, you know, where they're pushing these issues to the courts, but at the same, they're doing it because they don't necessarily agree on how best to tackle them. Like healthcare is another great example, you know, but as I, as I'm thinking through this, as we're, as, uh, as we're going to wrap here, um, you know, I think for our listeners looking forward and some of the questions that we're going to continue to come back to is one, how will this impact the campaigns? And then also, you know, what can Democrats do now? And one of the things that I, you know, I'll share kind of my final thoughts here and then let you, uh, Julian Lee, share yours, is that what I see now, this level of defeatism is very common in our politics and it's endemic. And it, I think it reflects that shift, this means ends view. And what can Democrats do? Well, the answer is nothing, nothing. Well, you know, as a conservative, I may not, depending on who the nominee is, I may want them to do nothing. But the fundamental point is you can always do something, always do something. William Riker, who's one of my favorite, favorite political scientists, one of the, the smartest guys that I've ever read. You know, he wrote this fabulous book called The Art of Political Manipulation. And he says, you know, winners, how do winners win? And remember, Trump said we were going to have a lot of winning. I'm not sure we've had a lot of winning, but we're going to have a lot of winning, apparently. Um, he, and Riker says, typically they win because they have set up the situation in such a way that other people will want to join them or will feel forced by circumstances to join them. And he talks about structuring the world so you can win. And that's especially the case in Congress. And so Democrats aren't powerless just because they can't filibuster, per se, um, a, a nominee. You have to take everything one step at a time. At a time, you have to try to figure out how to to disrupt what's right in front of you. And you know what I would say is that uh, politics in this nation is about possibility. It always is. It may be hard. It may be daunting. And yes, you may lose, but nothing is written. Nothing is written. That's the whole point of freedom. A justice may be confirmed. A justice may not be confirmed. This may impact the campaigns in one way, or it may impact the campaigns in another way. But we, as senators, as staffers, as outside observers, activists, and voters, all have a role in determining how that plays out. It is not written down anywhere, so far as I have learned. But I don't know. Lee, Julia, last words? What do you, what do you guys think? I think Julia had a, had a run. So I'll, I'll offer my last words, and you know, I want to want to pick up on a point that you just made, James, about the the parties being internally divided, and you know, in fact, not wanting to actually have to take a position on a lot of these issues, and therefore delegating uh, these tough issues to the courts, which just makes the courts even more political and more polarized. And you know, I, I think these are two sides of the same. Coin and that you know, I, I agree that there's incredible you know internal dissent within both parties, and that if we let a lot of issues 
go to the floor and up for debate that we'd actually see less polarization. But th this is precisely the reason that we have so much hyper-partisanship is because we're not doing that because both sides, you know, even though they can't agree amongst themselves, uh, they can agree that the other side taking power would be even more dangerous. Uh, and so that unity against a common enemy uh, keeps the internal dissenting factions from actually bringing that dissent forward because they, they might lose power. Uh, and they've been told that they have to keep together in order to maintain power. And if they maintain power, then maybe their side of, of the, the party will get to take total control. Uh, you know, I don't know, sound like a broken record here, but, you know, I, I think that 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 is, you know, really a function of this two party system in which we, we have these winner take all elections in which everybody's trying to get that 51 percent control in order to ram down the other, you know, their policies on the other 49 percent or, you know, perhaps more appropriately keep the other 49 percent from ramming down their policies. Uh, and, and the irony is that whichever side gets into power can't really get their, uh, you know, get their coalition t together enough to really do all that much. Uh, so it's it's just it's just this, you know, we're stuck in it. it. It's it's what I keep calling the doom loop and I will keep calling it the doom loop. It's that's it's it's great branding, but you know that is such a fabulous point and, that you just made, and it really, I think, at least in my thinking, clarifies a lot of your work too, and and I think aligns it uh, very closely with the way I see the world. But you know, for our listeners, uh, as we wrap up here, I would just say that whether you're in the forty nine percent or the fifty one percent. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative, a socialist or a capitalist, a Democrat or a Republican, you know, I, I think that I, I would urge us all to go forth and to to follow this debate and to and to participate in politics, but do so with the examples of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia firmly in front of you. And let's try to disagree with grace. Let's try to be passionate and hold our views and communicate across our differences, but ultimately to disagree with one another with grace and to listen to one another as we argue with each other about uh, what we think and hold dear. And that's all that we can do. And if we get that right, then maybe we can break this doom loop. But I think our institutions are going to have a, a big part to play in, in assisting us in, in that endeavor. And so with that, we're going to have a lot to talk about here. So again, this is Politics in Question. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.